Take RFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and live streaming of Primo local content. Download the Access Internet Radio app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on RFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life, the programme that takes wellbeing research off the page and into our lives. I'm Dr Denise Quinlan and today we're talking about the lessons learned from writing our book, The Educator's Guide to Whole School Wellbeing. This is a book that celebrates the work being done to support wellbeing in schools in Aotearoa, New Zealand and across the globe. I'm handing over to Adrian Buckingham, educator and wellbeing facilitator with the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience, who's going to run the show today. Hi, Adrian. Hello, I'm Adrian Buckingham, and my guests today are Dr. Lucy Hone and Dr. Denise Quinlan, founders of the NZIWR, or the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience. They're currently writing the Educator's Guide to Whole School Wellbeing. This podcast series will feature insights from educators around the world who have contributed to the book. Welcome. Thank you. Kia ora, Adrian. It's nice to be here and not be writing for five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do know that you're almost finished writing your book on whole school well-being. So what promoted you to write it and what's it called? So it is the Educator's Guide to Whole School Wellbeing. And essentially what started it off was we kept having schools come to us saying, we're in, we get it, we're totally motivated to, do, um, to take well-being seriously. Mm-hmm but we don't know where to start. And it's they were telling us of the proliferation of materials that are out there in terms of kind of curriculum and products and contents of their program. But where they seemed to be much more in the dark was around process and that process of getting started. So because mm. the two of us, Denise and I, work with so many different schools, that's one of the great things about living here in New Zealand, we just had that opportunity to have more diverse experience, which has kind of given us a bit of a um, greater insight into process. And lovely to be able to share that with people because we, I find myself often in a situation where I'm in a school and I'm thinking I would love them to know, oh, I've got a really great example from another school or someone else has been down this path. Um, strangely, I was talking about a school in Northland in New Zealand who have done this amazing turnaround um, in their school and I was thinking it would be useful for a school in the south of the country and I mentioned it to somebody at the World Congress from Israel who works with low decile Arab schools in Israel and she said oh please could you put them in touch with my school superintendent he could really do with some inspiration and some hope Mm -hmm. so um, hopefully what we do is capture some of these stories and practices in the book so that we can share them more widely with people. Mm. And you're covering educators not just around New Zealand but also around the globe, aren't you? Yeah, yeah research and um, practitioners um, from all over the place. Yeah. Um, that was one of the great um, things for us that we mm. recently went to the World Congress in Positive Psychology in Melbourne, which was an awesome opportunity just to catch up with the best of what's going on in our field um, and to talk to Mm. educators from all over the world on their experience, which is very much what we're sharing Mm. in the book. So I think we've got work work, um, and practice shared by educators from Denmark, Taipei, 
um, Hong Kong, Singapore, Australia, Canada, the U.S., the U.K. You've said and the U.K. Um, yeah, all yeah. sorts. So really diverse contributors, um, and the different chapters. Adrian really are looking at the best practice process that has come out of mm. all of our combined experience around the different things that schools have to consider. And one of the things we know is that it's not a linear process. You know, you don't all just start here and gradually move through very prescribed steps. You know, promoting whole school wellbeing is messy. Yeah, yeah. So we talk we talk about the fact, you know, the different chapters are on like the overarching process, the idea that well-being is taught, so there are curricula, but it's also caught in thousands of different processes and and in the school culture and we look at that. But then a significant part of it really is supporting schools to enter this messy pet phase and we talk about being in the sandpit and how you You've got to be prepared for trial and error. You've got to be prepared to get it wrong and encourage and support people to take risks and make mistakes. But also you need to enter the sandpit with some reasonable tools to make your decisions while you're in there. So, mm. Mm. Um, And one of those tools actually is just setting up opportunities to share what different staff in your school have been brave enough to try. And mm. so you might have... You might have one staff meeting, you know, once a month dedicated to well-being. That's not going to be enough. So you've got to be really determined to seek other opportunities for sharing what's being tried, what's going well. And what have some of your favorite uh, tools been that you've talked to educators about? What's being used around the world? I guess in terms of in terms of tools or, or the kind of insights we've had writing the book, I know, Lucy, one of the things that's been important for you has been being aware of it's not just one tool, it's the multiplicity of them. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. So I was talking to Rhiannon McGee, who um, Denise has done a podcast with that's coming up, um, who is Head of Positive Education at Geelong Grammar School. And one of her key insights was that, of course, professional learning for staff is really important to increase their confidence and familiarity with the material. But I love the fact that she really emphasised that you need to give all stakeholders in a school multiple and diverse opportunities to learn more about wellbeing. So that might be in professional learning, and some for some schools that will be you know two days or three days dedicated professional learning around wellbeing. But actually, for some other members of staff, it might be better for them to learn from a podcast or to use the book, which is why we've written the book. Um, mm. So I think it's really important, and that has really hit me and been verified by the resources and information we've had from other mm. um, other people who are doing this work all over the world is that you need to provide a smorgasbord of tools so that people can come to this work in ways that work for them. Mm. That makes sense. So what are some of the things you've learned, Denise, through writing this book? Do you know, one of the things that's really, really struck me is the importance of inclusion and in the, in the process of writing, um, I've realized how we've done a lot better in the last few years 
in terms of thinking about how do you contextualize well-being and how do we make what we're doing relevant and appropriate for the context and and how do we make work culturally responsive and you know we've We've got podcasts coming up with Tayyab Rashid on um, cultural responsiveness from an Islamic perspective. We've got Ara Simmons talking about multicultural settings. And we've got Nathan Rickey talking about cultural responsiveness for Māori. Um, but there's been very little conversation or literature that we've been able to find anywhere about well-being and people with disability. And so one of the things that we're really keen to talk about is... Um, well-being is well-being for all and how are we going to make sure that everybody all of the stakeholders all of the people in a school benefit and are included in well-being i think that's um mm. a really important thing to consider because otherwise we've got a group of people who typically get left to the side mm. getting their needs met on an average day and now it, for me it's sort of like creating a double whammy if we leave them out of well-being work as well mm. I don't think we've been very inclusive about inclusion mm. yeah I agree <laughs> um, and for me one of the real um, learnings from writing this book and talking to so many different people has been the prevalence of coaching now that is being used in schools to promote well-being and relationships. So there's been a lot of coaching research and, and coaching practice going on from, that's come from positive psychology for a long time now. But I think it's more recent that education has really, as a field, connected with the potential that coaching mm. provides to strengthen relationships, to have people just understand their own psychological processing much better, to be able to reflect, self-reflect, be more aware, to have courageous, challenging conversations with colleagues or parents that they wouldn't really have had the scaffolding to have before. But now that they've had some training and coaching, that has given them the really practical tools, the relational tools to... Um, make them feel more confident in themselves and their relationships with others. Absolutely. I think one of the things that's really helped that shift happen was that coaching has gone from being viewed as an external expert thing that you pay somebody several mm. hundred dollars an hour for, that's out of the reach of most state schools, mm. to being something that people, a solution-focused conversation mm. tool that people can get trained up in, for a yeah. couple of days, and it's saying we're not asking you to be professional coaches, but we're giving you some tools in your toolkit to be able to have useful, supportive conversations, teacher to teacher or mm. teacher to student or student, student to student. student. Yeah. Even parents to students mm. and parents to teachers. Mm. Um, one of the aims of our book has been to give educators broader access to broader resources as well so the good books and resources that we have come across while writing this book are all included we have a watch um, section which is all the videos that we've found we've got a read section that has got all those best books. reads yeah mm. and then the listen section that has got the best podcast too that we've come across and lots also from our this podcast mm. It sounds really comprehensive. Mm. Yep, it's been quite exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you most proud of doing the Educator's Guide to Whole School Wellbeing? 
I don't know, not so much proud for us, but one of the things that I've really been struck by is seeing that this field is really growing and developing. And um, I think when it started 10 years ago, there was a sense that a lot of, particularly the positive psychology side, that this came from psychology and it was still owned by psychology. And in the last decade, I think we've seen schools own it more. And it's this is a process that I don't think is finished yet, but it's definitely well underway. You know, um, it's... I, I'm, and I guess it's also, it's something that I'm proud of seeing how it's growing. And it's also one of the most important areas that I'm hoping to see develop, that, that we, do, um, we do think about professional practice um, in education as including well-being, that it's a mainstream part of education. I was talking to Matthew White from the University of Adelaide yesterday, and he was saying it's an area he thinks needs an awful lot more research. You know, well-being is central um, as a concern for educators, but in mainstream education research, there's not much done yet. So seeing more of that happening and seeing us doing, um, I, mean, I guess one of the things we've really been encouraging schools of late to do is to think about what are their educational tools that they know and trust and how can they use them to design well-being in their schools. So thinking about things like inquiry, design thinking, universal design for learning, solo taxonomy, these are all things that are familiar to education but not psychology. And they're good tools that educators need to be using to decide how they bring well-being into their school. So that's one of the things I'm, I'm excited about, that change. Mm. And I think it's just been fantastic to have, to take some time out to really dedicate to having an overview of what's going on in the world and to draw together best practice, um, diverse practice from educators all over the place, and to then share that in a book that won't cost schools the earth, so it gives them an immediate resource where they can kind of, you know, get the best go-to strategies that schools mm -hmm. are endeavouring to use at the moment. So I love that idea of um, collaborative learning and sharing. That always, you know, really spins my wheels. And ultimately, Denise and I are um, academics. You know, we love a bit of learning. So it's been an amazing opportunity to just get back and learn. And I've read so much more research in the last few months when we've been putting this together. And that has really reignited me in my passion for this field. Mm. I guess in, in terms of the more good news that we've found while we've been doing the research... Um, there is so much good work happening all around the world. And like I was looking at research from um, Scandinavia recently, and what I love about it is it's got a really different feel to what's coming out of the States. It's got their way of doing things, and it's, it's um, yeah, it's much more, it's values-based, it's collective. Really lovely to go, there's a breadth of information that we can be drawing on. That's exciting. Um, I think there is a maturing in the field. There's more critical evaluation of what we're doing and what's happening. And there is this sense that there is a growing consensus around what looks like best practice. Um, we're not there yet, but, mm. but we're definitely getting closer. Mm. Um, yeah, because that has been, I think we've both agreed that's kind of validating when you hear from practitioners and educators in very different places 
that they echo back to us the process that we feel is sort of best suiting schools, you know, and that is that schools find their own way to do it, that they have to be, it has to be contextualised wellbeing that's really suited to their context and their culture, um, that there's no one way to do it and there's no magic silver bullet either. Um, and the best practice is collaborating with you know, diverse stakeholders, really listening to your community and your parents, getting students properly involved right from the beginning, not just turning around to them three years later and saying, what do you mean you don't like the well-being curriculum we created for you? <laughs> you know, so that absolute authentic engagement from the outset um, is really one of the new themes that we are starting to hear about. And, and it's so lovely because it, on one hand it's a challenge when you're writing a book to, to be having so much repetition mm. but it's been a little bit gobsmacking to see the congruence and the coherence between say Clive Leach who's working with international schools all around the world, Charlie Scudamore who's in Australia and NZIWR working in state schools largely in New Zealand um, and people who've been doing this work for a while, all seeing that you've got to start with staff and you have to value and support staff well-being mm. if this work is going to be sustainable. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. And what change have you witnessed in actual schools? Oh, that's such a good question, isn't it? Um, so schools are starting to, starting to grapple with measurement in really different ways. Um, and that is partly driven by the fact that there are now an awful lot more providers of wellbeing assessments. Some of them, um, I'm not so sure whether they have been psychometrically validated and peer-reviewed, that research. So that's something that we've been really trying to dig into. Um, schools are starting to realise that you can't just do a well-being survey annually and hope that that's going to show a massive shift because actually well-being surveying is not really like that. You know, mm. you, schools will be really disappointed if they think you're going to see a massive shift in a year. Um, there's lots of recognition that this work takes time. Really a whole mm. cohort of students, I mean, really seven to ten years before you could start to see whole system change. And that's true of any change mm. dynamic, mm. isn't it? And so, you know, on one hand, people are getting more aware and sophisticated about the measurement they use and the being clear that the tools are appropriate for their students and mm. being aware of issues like, you can talk more about that, Lizzie, about um, data ownership mm. and ethics. Um, but the other side is we're hearing some more some of the more qualitative assessment on change. You know, we've got boys' schools talking about um, noticing boys being more able to express and own their emotions. Uh, and in, in boys' and girls' schools, hearing feedback around the counsellors are busy. It's not that there are more problems. It's that there's a greater openness and willingness to share and discuss those problems and mm. seek help. Mm. So they're, you know, they're interesting changes. And it's funny to think that that's actually a barometer of success in many ways. Mm. Um. And, and one of my favourites um, comes from a school here in South Dunedin um, from 
Debbie Smith, and um, she had a parent. This is a classic example of, you know, some of the changes are not uh, that strike to our heart are not quantitative, um, but qualitative. Debbie had a neighbor whose property adjoined the school playground um, call her over to their fence one day and say, what are you doing in your school? The conversation of the children in the playground has changed. Mm. And she said, what do you mean? He said, it's, they're kinder. They're, they're, they're kinder to each other. The language is different. That's really powerful. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is really amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And I love, too, some of the stories we've had from educators about the novel ways they have been thinking about well-being and evaluating well-being. I was talking to uh, one of the well-being team at Springston in Christchurch recently, Bobby, and she was saying to me, oh, well, I'm not really doing much. You know, no, I'm not really getting very far. And then she told me about this incredible thing that she'd been doing where she had emailed all of the staff and said to them, we want you to come in in the next week and just place yourself on that um, five ways to well-being all right roller coaster. So um, which basically you just get your little person and you just put them, place your person on the graphic according to where you think you sit on the emotional roller coaster. And so then she'd been collating this information and triangulating it with all of the school-wide information, thinking, okay, so when we were more people were in a dip, let's have a look at what was going on in the school. Oh, it looks like we were all... You know, it was week four or we were report writing. School production was on. school production was on. And I thought that was just such a beautiful way Mm. of bringing individual well-being assessment in a completely different way without a survey and Mm. then comparing it to what was going on at the school level um, and just building up greater insight than in really novel ways. And that's Mm. what I love about working with educators. Educators are so good at finding creative novel ways that I, as an academic, would never have thought of. Like the marble jars. Yeah. You know, this mm. was so... So one of the things that... An expensive and difficult way of measuring is to get to beat people on their phones and get moment-to-moment assessment. And it's, it's difficult to set up and organise. But this school had a much simpler, more prosaic alternative, which was five jars, five glass jars in the staff room and a big bowl of marbles. And staff were encouraged when they came in in the morning to put a marble in the jar that represented their well-being. And the jars were from awful, mm. you know, life's mm. a catastrophe mm. through to I'm... Mm excitedly happy <laughs> and the the principal came into the staff room one morning and saw the everything is absolutely awful jar overflowing mm. and it got immediate attention i think because the boiler had broken yeah, down they were all frozen <laughs> <laughs> but, so but it was giving immediate it was giving immediate <laughs> feedback, feedback. Yeah. yeah in a non-technical way yeah. yeah oh well that's great and you can make it quite technical if it's um mm. quantitative mm. if just a couple more questions. If you could do only one thing for the rest of your life to support the well-being and other people of other people, what would it be? I'm going to explore coaching more um, because I've really enjoyed learning about coaching. And I just can see from what I have read its potential to transform relationships and give people, equip them with the tools to have much greater self-awareness and insight and to be able to have 
you know, at times challenging conversations in much better ways that enable really kind of global well-being and whole school systems to do better. Mm. And Denise, what would you choose if it was just one strategy to help other people's well-being? I will squeeze. It's kind of one or two, really. Um, Kindness and compassion, I think. Mm. You know, to... I think we could do change from micro to huge macro level by being a little kinder and more compassionate to other people, recognising where other people may be coming from. Um, And it's not always easy. I've got a sign on my fridge that says, it's better to be kind than right. Mm. To remind me and my family of that, because we don't always remember. (laughs) And also it's a great week for Denise and I to remember to have a bit of um, mutual and self-compassion, because when you're on deadline, and for all of us, when you're at those real kind of crunch times in your life and you've got an awful lot going on, it's definitely the right time to just think, I actually do need to be kind to myself right now. Mm. I need to realise I haven't had much sleep. I need to just tell that to other people so that they don't all think, why am I behaving like a werewolf? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, on that note, uh, what's your go-to strategy for boosting your own well-being when you're feeling frustrated or down? Oh, for me, if... If I only have, you know, if I'm on book deadline, I've only got a few minutes, it's phone somebody who'll make me smile. Mm. Mm. I phone Mm. my kids and they will make me smile. And I become really obsessed about um, work when I'm on a kind of big deadline like this. And so it just whirs around in my head the whole time and it's really hard to block it out. So I absolutely intentionally resort to using my Kindle because I wake up all night. So I just read for another 10 minutes and fall asleep. Um, And just blocking out work by listening to podcasts, watching a bit of, you know, crappy TV or or reading a really easy to read book as well so that I've got an engaging strategy just to take my mind away from whatever it is I'm obsessing about. Oh, well, that's great. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you guys today. Um, Best of luck finishing the book in the next week. And um, thanks so much for talking to me today. Pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Adrian. It's been great to be with you guys. And we're really looking forward to um, this book being out there and sharing our work with people, but also especially to this coming podcast series where Mm -hmm. people are going to get to hear from absolutely great work from educators all over the world. You've been listening to Bringing Wellbeing to Life on ORFM Dunedin. If you'd like to learn more, our book, The Educator's Guide to Whole School Wellbeing, is available from nziwr.co.nz from early 2020. You can also listen to a podcast of this show on oar.org.nz, on nziwr.co.nz, and you can also subscribe to Apple Podcasts. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan. Thank you for listening. This program has been brought to you by the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience. For more information on how schools, communities and workplaces can grow their wellbeing and resilience, go to nziwr.co.nz. Take RFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and live streaming of Primo local content. Download the Access Internet Radio app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.